isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. If you're listening to this show, you probably like history. If you also like bourbon and want to dive into the history, science, and stories behind the labels, you have to check out Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. With three new episodes every week, you can learn all about the best bottles, the personalities behind your favorite brands, and get the juicy scoop on all things whiskey. For example, I just learned that bourbon is a distinctive product of the United States. It can't be produced anywhere else in the world. Kind of like champagne. And no, not all bourbon has to be made in Kentucky either. Join your hosts, Kenny, Ryan, and Fred on an epic bourbon adventure. Subscribe and follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts. everyone welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny Deljabar. uh we're also joined by our friend jose nino uh, jose nino is a uh, writer for um you'll find him on uh, mises you'll find him on big league politics um you've written for um for business insider as well right and in Infowars. yes i've had articles featured on there too in the past you've Jose has a lot of, I mean, I think over the past, uh, you know, five years or so, you must have written over a thousand articles, right? <laughs> kind of feels like it, but probably yeah. more like like the dozens, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking at like a lot of the things. I'm looking at your muckrack profile, and it says Big League Politics, and that's like your main publication you write for, right? Yep, yep, Big League and Liberty Conservative these days. Yeah, you have a, you have a lot of stuff. And I first started talking to you about Venezuela a couple of years ago, which you're originally from, right? Yes. So, but your your knowledge extends a lot further than uh, than um, obviously Venezuela. Um, like you're pretty well rounded in just geopolitics and and that, that you know the geopolitics that's going on in the world right now. And that's why we wanted to talk to you because, you know, I'm I'm trying to get a perspective from every single smart smart person I know. Um, and I know that you have, you're going to have um, a good perspective on this. So I just want to get your general take on, on Russia, the, the war in Ukraine and what you think is going on and how you're feeling. Well, I was personally surprised that Russia invaded because I originally thought that they were, when they were amassing troops on the border with Ukraine, that was just like a kind of like hardball tactic to create some type of negotiated settlement with regards to the NATO expansion question, get like a formal agreement signed off and all of that. But it looks like, the, yeah, they completely followed through with this invasion and which has been pretty much a disaster on all fronts for all parties involved and for the broader West too. Because now you have increased like justification for like a unified Europe from like NATO EU and then now having 
talks of like Sweden and Finland joining NATO. What's even worse is the spillover effects into like domestic politics as a result of all these punitive sanctions and oil embargoes that I believe will hurt Europe really hard in terms of the energy prices and the cost of living. And you're going to have the classic guns and butter issue where Europe already has pretty lavish welfare states. And when you couple that with defense, increased defense spending, you're going to have not only the energy crisis, but also a fiscal crisis in a lot of these states. And not to mention like the U.S. too, where also a lot of the working class is going to get nickel and dimed at the pump because of all these boneheaded energy policies and sanctions. So I think it's overall been pretty much a disaster. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people that still haven't learned a lot of like the the structural causes behind this this entire conflict and they insist that we need to dump a bunch of military aid into ukraine in order to give russia its second afghanistan and as a friend of mine nicolo soldo put it it's basically fighting russia to the last ukrainian and sanctioning russia to the last european with 10 euros in his pocket and it's just bad all around yeah, man. You know, the scariest thing is that there seems to be no off-ramp. It, it's been, what, six months? Not six months. Six weeks since the invasion or seven weeks at this point. Right now we're recording on April 10th, uh, Sunday. Um, this episode will be released tomorrow on the 11th. But it's been about six weeks. And I feel it odd that I'm, I'm like, getting more used to the feeling of looming nuclear war. Because when Russia first invaded and, and um, really when Russia first announced that they were going to be sending peacekeepers to the Donbass. And, and I was completely surprised as well. Like, I totally mispredicted. my I, um, I did not predict that Russia was actually going to invade weeks prior. I thought there was a slim chance, but I was telling, you know, our audience, like, I don't think they're going to invade. I think this is, you know, similar to what your take was. But uh, they did. And, and ever since they sent peacekeepers in there in, in, um, in the Donbass, I was like, fuck, they're going to invade. And then the following yeah. day, they actually did a full-scale invasion. And um, ever since then, I've just been feeling this looming threat of nuclear war that's really troubling, that's really scary. And um, now I'm getting used to it. So I kind of feel like how people in the 50s probably felt, or in the 60s, when they had like this stop and like, get under your desk drills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? What's even more frightening i think is the normalization and like the overall political discourse you'll see people on twitter just making these nonchalant comments about like a nuclear conflict like a low-grade nuclear conflict like it's like something like normal like to like kind of like normalize the idea of a of like a nuclear exchange or whatever like it's like some regular military affair when this is like something like insanely devastating that's not only going to like kill like thousands hundreds of thousands but will have residual effects for probably like decades to come when it comes to like the birth defects and just like the fallout from like a bunch of exposure to radiation but it's just so insane how you have all these journos uh, on twitter just offering their hot take about like such a like devastating conflict and it's like 
no, we spent multiple decades trying to avert this throughout the Cold War, and we should not try to relitigate this entire process. So yeah, I'm in agreement that there are there is like a really weird situation unfolding before our very eyes where a nuclear type of conflict is not out of the question and there's people that are kind of already normalizing this very concept as we speak so that's that's pretty frightening stuff if you ask me yep we, we actually covered uh recently an article um or like a foreign policy proposition I forget exactly who it was because uh, i don't have it in front of me but they were proposing that we you know use a limited nuclear strike to you know avert <laughs> Uh, to kind of show China who's boss uh, because reasons. I don't know. I also read another article that said that uh, a limited nuclear uh, war would avert global warming. So that's like an interesting take that um, <laughs> because it would you know, kick up a bunch of, you know, uh, sediment into the air and, and uh, you know, block out the sun's rays and cool it off or something like that. I don't know, dude. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, very crazy, actually. So... Uh, I'm with both of you guys on this one. I think it's these po- these people are fucking out. crazy. Yeah, talking yeah. about like normalizing this, they're fucking mm-hmm. nuts. Like yeah. for you to normalize and be like, hey, it won't be that bad of war with Russia. We need to engage with them and start a, a larger, full scale, devastating World War II style war, but with the addition of nuclear, you know, tactical <laughs> nukes, are out of their fucking mind. Right. They're crazy, and it is. Um, I think the the only thing that's protecting us. Oddly enough, what's protecting us from that fate are probably a handful of um, realists in the deep state, which yeah. is the most troubling thing. Like Will Burns is probably a guy who might be one of our lines of defense of things getting really, really ugly. So, oh, agreed. Yeah, he was. Yeah, people don't get that Will Burns was one of like the few people. I think it was like in 08 where he had that memo where he was like detailing like niet means niet, niet like no means, means no. Yeah. Yep. That yeah, like the he was one of those people that was really on point when it comes to the issue of NATO expansion. And yeah, even like the most ardent of cold warriors were like saying like hell no, this like NATO expansion stuff is is a total mistake. You like from like Jack Matlock to <clears throat> To even like Dwight Eisenhower's like daughter, like they, they had this whole panel of all these people, and it's like, no, you got like we we experienced the Cold War on like you neocon types and neoliberal types, and like there was always like this really big looming threat of nuclear conflict, and we need to like avert this as much as possible. But a lot of people don't want to listen. And now for more deranged takes, man, it's it's like gotten like even more bizarre because you have like people that are on this really aesthetic trip where they want to basically get people to become impoverished to just own Russia, just like lower your standard of living and like pay like exorbitant amounts of money at the pump just to like own Russia. I'm just like, you people are demented. This is like, and you and most of these people are like actually like self-styled liberals that claim to fight for like the common man and the working class but it's like you're pursuing all the policies from your sanctions and oil embargoes and natural gas stuff that destroys the the working class and it's going to put everybody in a, like a much more precarious economic state and also the like no fly zones man like it's like these people think 
these people are so zonked, like, they're, like, so zonked out on, like, Marvel and anime stuff. They think, like, a no-fly zone is, like, some, like, force field that protects... <clears throat> that will, like, protect Ukraine. <laughs> that will protect, like, Ukraine from, like, Ru- Russian, uh, like, aerial attacks when it's, like, the exact opposite of that. It's, like, literally you, uh, where U.S., like, NATO forces will, like, shoot down Russian planes, thus putting us, accelerating us on the path to World War Three. It's just... Um, this whole Russia-Ukraine war has revealed like a massive like psychosis on a huge segment of like the political class that was always there, and especially like the Russophobia. Man, that stuff is so clown world that I hope like this conflict ends soon because I think th- these people are just going to continue going more ape shit as the conflict goes on. Like I was, I'm wondering if if it was this bad because I was a kid when the Iraq War happened. I didn't really understand what was going on. I was definitely for it at the time, but I was a kid, and kid don't kids don't obviously know anything. Um, but I'm, just, I don't. I remember there being a debate. I remember having like being on the on the on the wrong side of it. I remember not liking the people who were on the other side and they were actually had mainstream position. They had, you know, more mainstream positions and there was like a unite, there was a democratic party who was voting against the war or Democrats who were voting against the war. Now there's just none of that at all. Oh yeah. That's, that, that's very true. Actually the, um, I'm actually working on a broader project that's like more uh, for like writing. That's like, that's, that's going to be called like the strange death of like the anti-war left. Because you really don't see the the strong anti-war left energy these days. You see it more on the emergent populist right. But it, it is very different now because even the Democrat Party, where you have like people like Ro Khanna, who correctly rails against like the war in Yemen, is now like towing the line when it comes to the rhetoric, the policies with regards to Russia, Ukraine, you're just not seeing the same type of resistance to a lot of previous unpopular like U- uh, U.S. proxy wars and interventions. And it's pretty scary because that is one feature about a lot of these great power wars is that they, they have a really nasty tendency of uniting the ruling class. And you don't just see it like in the like intra-party perspective when it comes to US politics, but you're also seeing it like in Europe, like you're seeing NATO getting reconsolidated and like the EU also getting reconsolidated when these bodies should have like more strategic autonomy and more diversity of thought when it comes to foreign policy. Well, well let's talk about Europe for just, just a bit because, you know, Viktor Orban, he won his election um, and he was projected to lose, I believe. At least, was he, you have been covering Viktor Orban, right? Yeah, I've covered some of his stuff, and he was projected to be in a pretty competitive race. That's from what I saw, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, he is, I wouldn't say he's taking a pro-Russian state, but he's definitely taking a more neutral approach. In his victory uh, speech, he even said that I had so much adversity, including the president of Ukraine. Um, And now you see that Le Pen is actually going to be running a competitive race, most likely. I think the last poll from YouGov.com was 49%, uh, 49-51% between Le Pen and Macron. Um, So I'm wondering if that um, sentiment from the populist right right now is 
kind of evolving in Europe? Like, will this lead to essentially regime changes in other countries in Europe because they just become unpopular with the, with, with the populace? Let's touch upon Orban because Orban okay. is pretty interesting. He his foreign policy is multi-vector in nature, where he plays off the EU and the US with the Eurasian powers. He'll extend olive branches to Russia on occasion when it comes to energy policy. Like they've been pretty adamant that they want to maintain normalcy with it when it comes to like the importation of natural gas and oil from Russia, and they're not committed to sending arms to Ukraine either. Yeah, Hungary, that said, Hungary has like, condemned the Russian invasion, and they will occasionally join the EU for sanctions, but they're always hedging. They're not taking a full-bore commitment against Russia, like, say, the Baltic states or Poland. And I would also add that Hungary has strong investment ties with China as well, and they were one of like the EU countries that helped block this one EU condemnation of China when China was imposing its national security law on Hong Kong. So there's a lot of independent-minded foreign policy thinking in Hungary. Now, as far as France is concerned, interestingly enough, <clears throat> I, I was arguing prior to the Russia invasion that there would have been a, a rapprochement between France and Russia was probably going to happen within like a year or two but now this invasion has thrown a major wrench in it but nevertheless there is a strong constituency in France that is pretty anti-NATO and it's like on the populist right you can see it from Le Pen and also Eric Zemmour, too, who's like even more to the right of Le Pen. They're, both their campaigns were basically calling for a, re, a major relaxation of, of diplomatic ties with Russia. Like they were, if not calling for a withdrawal from NATO or a, at least like a, scale, a scaling back of that because there is like a strong um, de Gaulleist tendency among a lot of the French population when it comes to foreign policy affairs. And when you think about it from a structural standpoint, Ru uh, Russia and France do have a lot of shared interests when it comes to tackling radical Sunni Islamists and also potentially like che checking Turkish <clears throat> influence, whether it's in the Mediterranean, Black Sea or just the overall European continent. So there's a lot of like commonalities there. And it stands to reason that the French political class has an incentive to somewhat dial down some of the hostile rhetoric and actions towards Russia. And even Macron himself said a few years ago that NATO is effectively suffering from brain death. And I do think that as... Econ the economic situation deteriorates across Europe, especially France. There will be strong electoral pressure from, especially from really angry voters in France, to take on more domestic issues and really ignore the warmongering that the Anglo sphere and the 
Eastern European states have towards Russia when it comes to Ukraine. I think there's, you're going to see a broader disconnect. And I think in the long term, this unity of the EU, NATO, may be a mirage because there's just so many different security complexes and, and divergences when it comes to foreign policy priorities in Europe that I don't think that this unification will last as long as some people believe it will. So you, you actually wrote an, uh, an article back in the end of March um, called uh, The Russian Embassy in France Trolls the U.S. for its interventions abroad. And I think that was on the Liberty Loft. Uh, and you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, how the the multi uh, the emerging multipolar order. Can you talk a little bit more about that in general? Because I think this is related to France specifically. Yes, there is clearly a <clears throat> now a multipolar geopolitical environment that's been more or less at play. I've argued that you could kind of see in its gestational phases when Russia um, intervened in Georgia back in 08, but now it's like in full effect. And you're seeing the rise not only of like the so-called Dragon Bear, the strategic partnership between Russia and China, but also I think as well with the rise of like an ascendant Turkey that's going more independent in its foreign policy Iran and other civilizational states too that are reasserting themselves and becoming big players on the world stage and they're not following the DC cons the Anglo-American consensus like the way they they used to for example India is not <clears throat> is not getting down with this whole uh, sanction Russia agenda that the EU and the US are pushing with regards to France, I could definitely if if Le Pen or any type of right wing populist wins in the next decade or so, you could see a some of this multipolarity become much stronger in how France may reduce its participation with NATO and start pursuing much more independent foreign policy where it forms some strategic partnerships of convenience with Russia on mutual issues whether it's like in north africa the mediterranean or wherever and not really follow like eastern european countries in the anglosphere you could also see as well countries like poland realizing given its tension with the eu and and also being stuck in the proverbial rock in a hard place like it has in its throughout its history with like a relatively hostile brussels government and then a resurgent russia start making its own geopolitical moves and potentially adopting like a dual use kind of nuclear program where it has like civilian and a potential like military deterrent and use that to like form a pact with the Baltic states to form like a de facto Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for the 21st century. You could see many of these scenarios because I do think we are on the verge of like a system breakdown especially once the economic um, <clears throat> realities start to unfold across like Europe and the West, there's going to be a lot of shifts and realignments when it comes to geopolitics. And a lot of countries are going to have to get really creative with regards to their security arrangements. And most people are really just not prepared for that 
at the moment because they they think that we're in this binary democracy versus autocracy type of dichotomy but i think it's much more complicated than that and the multipolarity is where it's gonna go for now but i tend to think that long term you may see more of a bipolar structure where if china is able to avoid a lot of its like internal demographic problems is probably set to be the competing pole with against like the u.s and the so-called collective west that's where i think it's heading it's gonna be like the china russia strategic partnership um versus the collective west like long term it's gonna be like much more coherent because right now there's still a lot of tensions between like the middle powers and regional powers like say for example china and india with their border disputes but i think long term once a lot of that gets sorted out you're gonna see like a much more coherent like east versus west type of like cold war struggle it's interesting that you say that uh, particularly in europe because macron is kind of posturing himself as like the new leader of europe after um, merkel's departure from the chancellorship in germany um but if he loses to le pen or you know as you say if if, uh you know some of the more populist opinions in in um france prevail then you know that kind of unity as you say that might be a mirage might kind of crumble and 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 put that collective west at a at a uh, at a disadvantage in this emerging multipolarity as you say i do want to talk a little bit more about india though because because you touched on it um and india is kind of an interesting case for me because they are the largest democracy uh and and you know we shouldn't sleep on them either uh they've got a huge huge population um and they happen to border China as well, and they have some disputes with them as well. Um, but in this particular conflict, it seems like they're not playing ball with what America wants. Uh, and you wrote some articles about that too. I was hoping that maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yes, India is, is a really curious case because there's a lot of geopolitical continuity that they they have with regards to their Russia policy because even during the first Cold War, India had a pretty robust strategic partnership with the Soviet Union in terms of weapons and like military cooperation, especially when India confronted Pakistan. And even to this day, India remains, I believe, um, the biggest buyer of Russian arms in the present and as a result they have a pretty strong relationship and it's no surprise why India has not played ball with the West's demands to sanction Russia and looking at it from a big picture India has pursued a non-aligned foreign policy when dealing with Western great power conflict or proxy wars they're just not gonna really get down with the west the only time you could you see their interests aligned with the west is with regards to china but it's not really because of a democracy versus autocracy thing there it's mostly when it comes to a lot of geospatial interests like whenever china tries to assert itself more in the indo-pacific get and put naval assets there that's when 
when India starts to get weary or also like the border as well with those border conflicts. But when it when you start talking about like say like democracy issues, like say like in Xinjiang, like human rights issues there in Xinjiang or mm-hmm. Hong Kong, India tends to be rather silent on that because India does have like a very realist foreign policy. It's really looking at how it's going to try to def- um, assert itself in the Indian subcontinent and it's not going to go on these quixotic type of like nation building or democracy promotion ventures, despite the fact that it is a democracy, but it has a ruling class that understands that there's like geopolitical limits to what it could do. And it goes for, it goes on foreign policy projects that align with its interests. And one thing I think that is interesting about this whole Russia, Ukraine diplomatic episode is that the West has through its like really bungled foreign policy has kind of memed the BRICS into um, into existence now because of the fact that Brazil, Russia, India, China, and like South Africa, they're they're not jiving with these calls to just like pun- um to punish Russia, and they're more or less aligned on this issue, whether it's like in their neutrality or their support. So. We're beginning to see a new economic sphere emerge that is probably going to become much more autonomous from the West. And as a result, we are seeing a deglobalization emerge that goes completely against the consensus of the 1990s that we reached the end of history and that this uh, system of globalization would last for decades to come. That's unraveling before our eyes. And we're entering a new type of world order, if you will. And most people have still not come to grips with that. As it relates to that, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of an East versus the collective West. Where do you think, and this might be an oversimplification, honestly, but where do you think the, the Indians slot in, you know, in this multipolarity? Do you think they join the East? Do they stick with the West or do they make some other thing? Or is there something that we're not even seeing? Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story, and I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that. But uh, we have some other breaking news as well, and that's Harry's razors. So Harry's razors... They're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products. So they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors and they would get dull right away. And often, I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face, and uh, my face feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. 
There are German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may see a repeat of history where India revives its that one uh, non-online partnership that it was able to kind of forge during the Cold War, um, despite having that strategic partnership with the Soviet Union on occasion, they were mostly unaligned on, in most cases there. And I think they may revive that because they do have a lot of problems with, with China because if China does have economic aspirations one of its biggest roadblocks will be india in it and how it's a nuclear power that is going to try to assert itself in certain parts of the indo-pacific and the indian subcontinent and that's and they could play definitely the role of the spoiler that said i'm not very um i'm not as optimistic as some people in the west that think that they're going to automatically align with the west because a lot of people in the foreign policy blob don't really like the Hindutva government of Narendra Modi. They don't really like this so-called illiberal democracy that's um, emerging in India. And India, f- for what it's worth, has a very realist foreign policy that is not going to always align itself with the West. The only way I think that India will merge with the West is if China gets really assertive in India's domain or any areas where India has very strong strategic interests to the point where and India will just say, okay, we're just going to align with the West here because this this is a threat to our interests. But if, say, like a war with Taiwan breaks out or something like that or some type of other Chinese military incursion that's far away from India happens, they, they're probably going to sit it out because there's just not that much of an interest. Like the West will probably get involved because it's, really um, fanatically committed to this but india is a a sovereign nuclear power with a measured foreign policy so i don't expect them to always follow the west blindly into these conflicts and i don't think they're going to form a permanent type of partnership with them even if china um, starts making moves that go against india have you been paying attention to the indian media at all I have seen some stuff. They they seem pretty much like neutral or on the side of Russia when it uh, with regards to this Russia Ukraine conflict. They they do not like the idea of like the West lecturing them on like taking like a firmly oppositional stance against Russia. 
it was this uh, the host of I think New Republic. I think that's the network. Um, it's an Indian. I'm not sure if it's state affiliated or what, but they this Harvard that the host of this show. Um, this Harvard professor was came on and he was making the case why India needs to join the West and condemn Russia and sanction Russia. And this Indian host just started screaming at him and started saying, we're not your vassal state. How dare you come on our show and you start speaking to us like we're one of your satellite states. Hmm. Like we're, in, we're a country of a billion people. That seems to be the sentiment. Because I've yeah. seen some other Indian shows as well. And, you know, I imagine they're, they're speaking on behalf of the state where they're just not having any of it like they're not they feel disrespected even being asked to join in on this collective effort i don't blame them because i mean india is a nuclear power a billion people a large economy that can chart its own destiny at this point and there is a overall mentality now in the asian continent in general that I think was highlighted by a speech that Xi Jinping gave around like 2015, where he effectively called for like an Asian for um, in Asia for the Asians that's like run by the Asians and not subject to interference from the West and other external actors. It actually sounded eerily similar to the uh, Imperial Japan's. A co-prosperity sphere, if you will, where they wanted to, in effect, create a kind of like a Monroe Doctrine for Asia and keep all external actors out. And you may see a kind of new security complex emerge where, yes, there will probably be disputes between China and India for sure when it comes to border issues, but water rights and all that. But when it comes to the West just coming in to try to interfere in that, you may see a lot of these countries just put aside their immediate grievances to say, "Hell no, we're not going to let you guys dictate the terms of our um, of like the of the game, or even butt into our disputes so that you can play us off each other and weaken us." Because when you actually think about it, in many respects, there are some very cynical Western leaders that would love to see India and China bleed themselves out in a protracted conflict so that the U.S. could still have a pretty dominant position once the dust settles in like the Indo-Pacific and continue projecting power there. I, I could definitely see an arrangement where a lot of these Asian countries just say that, yeah, we're going to have conflicts here and there amongst each other. That's like the nature of international relations, but we don't want these Westerners coming in here to try to interfere in our internal affairs and play us off each other and make things worse. That That's very much, I think, a new reality that could start coming into fruition in the 21st century. And what's interesting is that since there's a bigger focus right now on European security, there's going to be states like Japan and South Korea that are going to be like, oh, well, we may have, we're going to have to invest in our own defense now because they're wrapped up in Europe. And we know we're not. If China decides to invade Taiwan or they take a more aggressive posture in the Pacific, we're, we're going to be on our own. Um, you even see countries like Japan and, you know, Japan and, and South Korea, they're pretty much going to do, at least uh, we give lip service to what the U.S. demands, but 
they're still working on them with the, with uh, some some gas deals. I believe in um, the uh, the Sakura Islands, like up north, um, yep. where they had some joint projects with Russia. They're not canceling them. Um, I think they joined in on their sanctions, but um, they're still going to buy or still going to cooperate with them in, on uh, oil and gas deals. That's a funny. That's a funny actually thing that you brought up because I was watching some videos on you know, some of the tension between Japan and Russia over those northern islands. And uh, the funny part about it is that, you know, the history of who owns them uh, really has these, uh, the dispute has some eerie similarities to say, you know, Crimea uh, in general. Um, And right now, I mean, technically they're still at world war with each other. Uh, They haven't signed any any peace agreements uh, since then. And with this new conflict happening in Ukraine, and in particular, you know, with Russia taking or annexing um, Crimea, it kind of re-surged the debates over the, you know, ownership of those islands, which coincidentally has a lot of oil (laughs) and and natural gas uh, they've discovered, um, you know, fairly recently. And so I wonder how that plays into it. Uh, and as far as like a, you know, Japan making themselves shoring up their own defenses, I wonder where they would align uh, in that respect as well. Uh, if there were like some kind of Asian Monroe doctrine as, as Jose San here. Yeah, Japan is a curious case because <clears throat> there is also a growing kind of populist movement there because like of how hollowed out their economy has become since the 90s. And as a result, you may see, um, I wouldn't be surprised as well, especially once we're in a really like fully multipolar context that they may not only remilitarize and get have, become more autonomous in terms of their defense, but I wouldn't be surprised either if they start pursuing a nuclear program as far as like for military purposes because I did recall John Mearsheimer had a recent interview when they were um, about nuclear arms control where he was on a panel and he he had a pretty eye-opening take where he said that he believes in a multipolar geopolitical type of environment, you, you may see more regional powers start engaging in nuclear hedging or outright pursuing uh, nuclear deterrence because we are heading into a more chaotic kind of like geopolitical atmosphere now. So a lot of, and a lot of states may not be able to rely on the US or other countries for security guarantees and let's face it the u.s has a is going to have a lot of domestic problems soon with the economy and all of that and growing social unrest and just like the overall breakdown of public order and you can't run guns and butter forever countries these countries will have to be forced to roll back and that creates scenarios where a lot of like the U.S.'s allies and strategic partners are going to have to have plan B's and C's with regards to their security arrangements and even defense policies. And in some cases, it could be pretty frightening where they may have to get a nuclear deterrent because it is ultimately 
one of like the highest expressions of like national sovereignty. So mm -hmm. we are um, we are heading for some pretty chaotic times. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Germany is is currently rearming, right? They're passing a one-time bill uh, of billions of dollars to basically up their military capability, uh, and they have a plan to increase their military expenditure. I don't remember the exact percent, but it's high, uh, much higher than it was before, which would make them effectively, you know, Europe's, you know, best funded military. Uh, and that's interesting, you know, following post-World War II, where, you know, they've been basically pacifists and quiet, you know, in their own little country. And it makes me think about Japan in that respect, because when you talk about nuclear deterrence, I mean, we've got, obviously, Russia and China are both nuclear nations. They're tiffing with Russia, you know, on some northern islands. They're still technically at war with them. Uh, we've got China messing around in, you know, the, the islands in the, in the Pacific. Uh, which are also, you know, claimed by Japan as well. So there's two people that they got to worry about who have nukes. Uh, and, of course, there's always North Korea, who, you know, is recently spurring up their nuclear program and continuing their war against Atlantis by firing rockets into the water again. So, <laughs> you know, and, and then when you take all of that into consideration alongside what you just said, you know, regarding the United States and its own domestic problems, as well as this conflict in, in uh, Ukraine, it really does make a pretty strong case, you know, if you're a realist in Japan to say like, hey, maybe we should pursue some some more military, you know, expenditure. Maybe we should bolster our, our military. That's kind of scary, you know? It's, it's a little bit scary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One interesting thing about Germany is that their foreign policy, despite being ostensibly in EU and NATO, on geoeconomic fronts, they tend to deviate from the Anglospheric consensus because they do have strong economic ties of China and also Russia, and they've they've also have not really fully gone so hawkish against Iran on trade issues they still have pretty robust trade there and they also also with Turkey like Germany has one foot in the door and one foot out on a lot of economic affairs. And when you have a pretty militarily assertive Germany, they, in the long term, they're not always going to follow anything that's coming out of like London or the US. And we already have like obvious previous history that demonstrates that because people tend to forget that the, like the British really liked the idea of German unification originally, like in the 19th century, because it would be a really good check against France. But then it, that kind of Back blew up in their, yep, yep. But that kind of blew up in their face though, mm -hmm. and with two world wars and who knows if history will repeat itself again with that, or it could manifest itself in a different way where Germany just says, screw you, we're just going to pursue an independent foreign policy and we're not going to partake in whatever designs the Anglosphere has. And I think like that's one problem too that the DC and London crowd haven't really grasped is that this, this arrangement that, that they were able to capitalize on in the 90s where you had like globalization and all this and this ascendant ascendance of liberal democracy it's not going according to plan and it's actually 
unraveling in many respects and a lot of the assumptions they had just no are no longer bearing out because uh, like at the end of the day you can have like the most overly ideological like western state like germany that ha that shares a lot of that stuff but there's these countries at the end of the day will still pursue their national interests with regards to energy policy and all of that that stuff like matters much more than your country's ideological fixations and even in the U.S.'s case, it's going to be faced with very harsh realities soon where it can no longer afford to do a dual containment policy with Russia and China. They're going to have to, like, if China becomes ascendant, they're going to have to pull out some of their resources from not only, like, the Middle East, which is they've already been doing, but also from Europe. That's just, like, the cold hard truth. Hmm. Well... Uh, if we could change gears a little bit, you, you, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And you wrote an article very recently on this particular conflict that I, I really wanted to get your take on. So you wrote the article uh, titled, What's the Latest Flare-Up Between Armenia and Azerbaijan Tells Us About the Nagorno-Karabakh Conflict. And uh, we, we've covered this um, conflict in the past. It was... <laughs> Actually, a really long time ago, and it was kind of hard for me to find the notes that we had on it before. But you know, this is a conflict that sprung up between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan back in October of 2020, and we haven't really picked it up since. Um, so I just kind of interested in getting your take on it uh, because you've written a pretty interesting article on it recently. And uh, you know, kind of before we get into the article, I, I just wanted to do a quick little recap uh, for everyone that's listening because uh, they might not be fully aware of what's going on and admittedly because the war in Ukraine seems to be eating up all the airtime, no one's really paying attention to this. So um, some quick points on that. Nagorno-Karabakh, it's basically a breakaway region in Azerbaijan that's populated by Armenians. And there was this really awful war between uh, Arme uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia between 88 and 94 that you know killed about 30,000 people. And you know, since then, Russia had brokered a peace deal in the early 90s. Um, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh has been considered basically a frozen zone with some occasional outbreaks and fighting. Uh, and you know, basically, the fighting that's taking place now and that picked up in the 20, 2020, uh, you know, is the biggest that we've seen since the 90s. And you know, um, there's a lot of rhetoric popping up, you know, on both sides. It's not exactly a classic proxy war either. You know, um, for at least 150 years now, the ethnic Armenian Christians basically held a majority in the mountainous areas in Nagorno. Um, and, you know, early on in the history, basically 1805, Tsarist Russia conquered the entire region and they did it, you know, they did that classic like pit ethnic groups against each other. And, you know, since then, the ethnic Armenians somehow held on to the majority of the mountainous region, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that kind of went on between a lot of different parties, including, you know, the USSR, now Russia, Turkey, um, even Iran in certain uh, cases are all kind of popping into this particular conflict. And, you know, researching this has been pretty tough for me because there's so many factors that make it a little confusing. You know, the first part, just looking at the map is crazy. Uh, you got Azerbaijan on the Caspian Sea to the east. You know, in the west is uh, Armenia, which is landlocked. In the north, you have Russia bordering Azerbaijan and Georgia bordering both Azerbaijan and Armenia. In the west, you have Turkey. And in the south, you have Iran. And on the face of it, it seems pretty straightforward. But if you look closer, there's some weird cross-border stuff going on. There's this landlocked exclave that's owned by Azerbaijan, which looks like it should belong to Armenia geographically. 
and that's called the Nakhchivan uh, Autonomous Republic, which is sandwiched between Armenia, Iran, and a little sliver of Turkey. And then, and then of course, you have Nagorno-Karabakh, which is stuck between you know the southern part of the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. All of it is super geographically confusing to me, and all of these neighboring countries are kind of in on the conflict in one way or another. So super long uh, backstory here, but can you just tell us a bit about you know those neighboring countries and their alignment in this particular conflict? Yeah, it, this is a, I think you're, you're correct um, in mentioning how the ethnic component of this conflict ha- is like centuries in the making because in a lot of these frozen conflicts in the for- in s- former Soviet republics, you just had these really weird borders drawn up where you have like one or two, or sometimes even more than three or four ethnic groups just battling each other so um and that's like a a classic divide and rule strategy that empires use all the time but now that we're in the era of nationalism a lot of these these areas want to have like their own nations or they want um they want to join their broad uh broader nation as part of like irredentist affairs because i think irredentist conflicts are very much alive and well now yeah, Armenia is pretty interesting because it is part of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and it's technically in Russia's sphere. But the current pre- uh, current leader of Armenia, uh, Nikol Pashinyan, has made some overtures to the West, and has actually tried to do everything possible to align with NATO and certain types of partnerships. So this has been part of like a broader struggle that we've seen in the post-Soviet space where a lot of these countries that have historically been part of like the Soviet Union or the broader Russian civilizational sphere of influence, they have tried to pursue multi-vector approaches to foreign policy and have courted the West much to Moscow's chagrin. And funny enough, there is like a parallel with Armenia in that it actually has been like pretty underdeveloped just like Ukraine um, ever since the Soviet Union collapsed and it's filled with a lot of economic malaise and corruption and a lot of it has to do with the with how it's tried to disconnect itself from its natural economic kind of zone um, meaning that it's should really be more aligned with Russia on economic affairs and it's tried to connect itself more with the West but that's and that's really left it pretty vulnerable and azerbaijan on the other hand has been pretty ascendant it's um heavily relied on oil and natural gas to boost itself and azerbaijan is an interesting country in that it is like 70 percent shia but it's a pretty it's a secular authoritarian regime because when you look at a lot of these former soviet countries with large islamic populations that there's been um People tend to forget this, that in the Soviet Union, there was a huge de-Islamicization policy pursued under Stalin where they did break down a lot of like the Muslim identities of a lot of these Central Asian republics. And as a result, like they were still predominantly Islamic, but there was not a very strong fundamentalist strain of Islam taking root in these republics. It wasn't until the, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union that you saw a lot of 
uh, Gulf Arab money and like just like Salafist money come in to try to revive like Islamist insurgencies and overall Islamic Islamist currents in those countries. But yeah, um, despite all that, Azerbaijan is like this predominantly Shia country. The but it is in many respects a Turkish proxy, if not strategic partner partner with Turkey and. And Turkey has, the, uh, um, in the recent conflagration, Turkey has pr provided mercenaries and arms and to help tip the balance uh, against Armenia. And curious enough, Azerbaijan has an interesting relationship with Israel, of all countries, mm. and as noted with its uh, suicide drone technology. And there is a reason for it as well, because it, um, it double dips into... Um, the issue of Iran, right? Because <clears throat> Iran has a substantial Azeri population that, according to some estimates, numbers in the fifteen to twenty million. And some Iranian authorities and pro-regime journalists believe that elements of that population are a potential fifth column, if you will, that's been activated by Israel to advance a lot of Israeli interests in Iran because when you look at Iran and really the broader Persian civilization, one of the ways external actors have historically tried to undermine it is by tapping into a lot of its diverse segments of the population that may have certain ethnic grievances or just broader grievances with the authorities in uh, the central authorities in Iran. So you have this really weird confluence of actors where Iran will try to step in to this Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict to make sure that there's like some degree of territorial integrity respected there. But at the same time, they, they tend to be aligned with Armenia, but at the same time, Iran shows like some flexibility where they want to maintain trade with Azerbaijan and just make sure that like the the relationship doesn't like boil over because they have a significant Azeri population that they have to deal with at home. So there's a balancing act and even with Russia too, <clears throat> Russia obviously tries to craft the ceasefire arrangements and all of that but they also are not the biggest fans of Pashinyan because of his overtures to the West and in many respects they haven't been as energetic to intervene on Armenia's behalf to kind of teach them a lesson, if you will, that if you're going to make all these overtures to the West, don't always count on us to be like the most reliable ally in these conflicts. And Russia has also entered into like defense agreements with Azerbaijan. Like they're they're willing to cooperate with Azerbaijan on certain issues of key interests in that region. So it's, it is a complicated scenario because it's not as like black and white in terms of the alliance structures and partnerships like it's very clear that all the actors involved are willing to sometimes switch sides or at least engage in certain types of negotiations even if they ha they disagree on other issues like they it's very dynamic but i think there are certain people in dc that see this um see this conflict as a way to stir up trouble on Russia's eastern flank and try to use Azerbaijan as a proxy to wreak a lot of havoc because Azerbaijan has also cooperated with NATO in the past and 
when you look at the way that Turkey it has been hedging with regards to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you I would not put it past some people in D.C. to start poking Turkey and say, hey, you guys need to talk to your partners in Azerbaijan to cause some trouble in the Caucasus and all that. Like, there's definitely some people who probably have picked up on that and want to just wreak as much havoc in Russia. You already saw that with Kazakhstan earlier this year, where there were some elements of the Muslim Brotherhood and potential Turkish involvement there to stir up trouble in Kazakhstan. And I think like we, we have to look at these conflicts from a bigger picture in that, yeah, these might be in remote areas, but they're also in pretty strategic areas for Russia. And there's always the potential for external actors in the West to take otherwise organic, like domestic protests taking place in these areas and then divert them into these weird geopolitical ventures that have like the end goal of just sticking it to Russia and making life miserable for it in its near abroad. So what, so what actually happened in the 2020 reboot of the 88 conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan? You saw like the, um, like this new like conflagration kick off, um, like in late September of like 2020, that did result in like um, Azerbaijan gaining like uh, control of like several districts, uh, boarding uh, that were bordering Nagorno-Karabakh that Armenian forces were actually like previously in control of, and. And now, like, um, Azerbaijan controls a pretty, like, significant uh, por uh, portion of um, Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And that's what, like, resulted from this conflagration. That said, like, Russia stepped in to keep, like, this peacekeeping, maintain this key peacekeeping force to patrol, like, the rest of the disputed territory, which has... Um, which is like, it's the classic frozen conflict that will continue to sporadically kick off depending on the local circumstances. And yeah, you saw the recent uptick in, in violence um, uh, a few weeks ago where <clears throat> Azerbaijan... Um, sent several forces into this uh, village of Peruk and forced like women and children from like this like nearby village to evacuate for like per security purposes. Now, this was kind of spurred by Azerbaijan cutting off like natural gas supplies like to the overall region. It claimed that it was just care it was doing these routine repairs. But the Armenians were very paranoid and said that th this there's something more to this. And then eventually, um, uh, the Azeris sent some of their forces to uh, uh, into these villages, and that kicked off a new set of of um, clashes. Now, it is kind of interesting because there you also have to look at like the domestic situation in Armenia too, because. You had like the Armenian president um, Arman Armin uh, Sarkisian resign during speculate uh, with um, amid like speculation that Pashinyan, the prime minister, was about to sign off 
on some controversial compromises with um, Azerbaijan with um, regards to border demarcation and a potential normalization of dip diplomatic relations with Turkey, which would not sit well with a lot of hardliners in Armenia. And the situation is like very tense all around. In fact, I think there was a former president of Armenia that flat out said that um, Armenia should push to just become like a federal district of Russia, just a seed into Russia, like the way South Ossetia is about to do so. Because like the, the economic situation in Armenia is pretty bad. There's a lot of corruption and in many regards, you can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We see this kind of trend in a lot of these former Soviet republics where these countries have been like really dysfunctional um, over the past few decades and as a result, they're pretty susceptible to outside influence and and just overall like institutionally fragile. When you look at this Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, it is kind of the classic conflict of a strong ascendant state like Azerbaijan just beating up on a weaker state like Armenia. And Armenia is definitely stuck between a rock and a hard place because let's face it, it's not going to be joining like the West anytime soon, and any and any of like this West safeguards and protections won't have like any kind of credibility in that in such a far flung region. Like if they were not even able to defend Georgia during the 08 Russian invasion, they sure as hell are not doing that with Armenia. And Armenia more than likely is probably going to either bolster bolster ties with Russia or potentially end up joining it in the long term because right now its political class um, really has not been able to build like a sustainable like political and economic system where it not only provides 
strong like domestic benefits but also security benefits as well because when a country gets like humiliated like that and has like such bad domestic politics uh, it's just like a recipe for some type of restructure in terms of the regime and the situation is kind of dire there well you know what's interesting about that is that you know you wrote that um uh, and, I'll, and i'll quote you against the backdrop of Russo-Ukrainian uh, war, Azerbaijan is looking to exploit Ru- uh, Russia's primary focus on its military operation in Ukraine to make gains in Nagorno-Karabakh. So kind of putting two, to get, two together from what you wrote and what you're saying today, it kind of sounds like Armenia is just trying to get closer aligned to Russia to help prevent any additional gains that the Azeris would be making there. What would, what would make that relationship kind of tenuous is that Azerbaijan, uh, excuse me, Armenia doesn't have any like natural border with Russia, and it's not on a coast. Um, yep. And you know, <laughs> with with that in mind, you know, how does Russia support them in that way? Uh, also, there's like some additional tensions because then that would mean we've got the northern kind of areas of of Georgia, uh, like Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, that are thinking about either becoming their own thing or joining Russia. And then below them, uh, Armenia joining Russia, that would put Georgia in kind of a curious uh, position where now they're completely surrounded on all sides by Russia. And I'm sure they probably feel the, um, the, they still feel the pain of the 2008 invasion, you know? So we're, you know, that's, kind of sounds like a bit of a tinder pot there if they start making yep. those moves. And it's actually even more curious, Russia and Georgia's relations have actually improved somewhat. And uh, Georgia has not been as enthusiastic about imposing sanctions and other punitive measures against Russia during the Ukraine conflict. Yeah, it, it's really, um, yeah, for example, our, um, I don't think Russia has much interest in trying to incorporate um, Armenia into its fold because it, it would create like a really strange um, security situation where it's it's not going to be able to defend it very well and it's, it will stoke tensions with Georgia. I think that they will try to maintain the status quo with like the peacekeeping forces and just make sure the situation doesn't get out of hand. And I think as well... Um, your, your policy, Iran, try to assert itself in the region to maintain some balance. So I, I, I think for like Iran and Russia, their interests will align in that they want to maintain like the status quo as like much as possible and not make sure that any type of outbur- outbreak of violence goes down. Um, there's, I don't think there's much interest in any more jurisdictional um Realignments now because Russia already has its hands full with uh, Russia uh, and already has its hands full with Ukraine. Well, for to that point, then you know how does Russia maintain a status quo if they've got their hands full like that? Doesn't this kind of guarantee an Azeri win in any of the you know interests that Azerbaijan has? It's a good question. I, I I'm not sure um, because. <clears throat> It, it really will boil down to, I think as well, how the Russia-Ukraine conflict unfolds. If this drags on for months, on end, which I think it will, you may see Azerbaijan get more assertive um, 
on that end and try to push as much as possible. I did see a report, I don't think it was fully confirmed, that Iran was considering deploying uh, military units in that area to halt like further tensions but who knows you could see that play out because like di like direct forces like the cuds forces or or proxies like hezbollah um direct forces but that i was it was unconfirmed but who knows because that could be part of because also russia and iran have bolstered ties and that could be part of their new security architecture where um iran will just have to like take on the, this this matter because it does have a strategic interest in, in that area and that's also been part of the broad uh, historical persosphere but yeah this is definitely a tinderbox area and i think people should pay attention to it because it's not just some random far-flung area that um people can barely locate on a map i think it does have strategic importance and it could be a place where a second front of conflict could emerge in the next few months that's interesting hey, it's right on the caspian sea i mean the caspian sea um has a lot of resources um so it is it is a strategically important per place a part of the world now let me let me ask you this so we we're talking about kazakh or you brought up kazakhstan before do you think that was a like an actual regime change because you know the official story or you know we, we covered this and you know, the conclusion I came to is that, you know, it could have been CIA, NGO type regime change, but it seemed to be just an internal conflict between Takayev and Nazarbayev, um, you know, the current president and then like the father of the nation. Like, what's your take on that? Like, do you think that was a was an actual uh, kind of policy decision from the U.S. or from the West to try to get uh, uh, Takayev out of uh, out of office? Yeah, there was definitely a kind of clan struggle there from what i've seen um i'm not as informed on that issue but there were a lot of controversial lockdown policies there as well and and people were really like um justifiably ticked off with the government and it's kind of like a lot of these color revolutions you do see like organic protests emerge over legitimate domestic grievances but then you see like the usual suspects with the western ngo industrial complex just come in and not only like stir the pot but also divert all like that energy into causes that advanced western geopolitical interests in the country and i think that you saw that like when you when there were like these like incidents of of just like local law enforcement like being decapitated people started saying hmm this yeah. kind of looks like some kind of like like jihadist action because like you don't see that even in the typical color revolutions like in the west like like you'll see like some people killed but like not like in that fashion that's the uh, points of science to some type of um actors and external actors involved now with like the central asian republics um as i mentioned before they have the peculiarity of despite being like predominantly islamic um they really haven't had these fundamentalist strains take off until the post-Soviet era when you have a lot of um, money from like Gulf Arab states and like these Salafist networks come in to build these movements. And these countries are also pretty nationalistic. So they may align themselves with Russia and China on certain 
economic and military issues, but they're not very keen on fully integrating themselves into, like, say, like, a Eurasian version of, like, NATO or some type of supranational structure of, of that sort. So they kind of balance. Like, Kazakhstan is also a multi-vector actor that tries to play off Russia, China with the West and try to get the best deal. And, yeah, these countries are, are um, also can be kind of fragile in the sense that you have, like, northern Kazakhstan which Russian nationalists have always wanted because it has nearly half of its population composed of like ethnic Russians. So there's always the question of territorial integrity in play with these former Soviet republics. So I have another question for you. And this is kind of uh, changing topics a bit, but I want your, your take on this. And so um, allegedly... The U.S. wants to re- the policy from the United States is, is regime change in Russia. How true do you think that is? Like, do you think that there's actually a policy in the U.S. to remove or see Putin removed? And if so, do you think that's realistic? I would say there's definitely it's definitely like a fever dream of some anti uh, some of like the anti-Russia crowd um, in D.C. that they want. Putin out but it's I think it's pretty unrealistic due to the fact that these sanctions and just the overall um, like the hysterical Russia phobia that's emerging from all these like policies being passed in Europe and also these like corporate policies that Western companies have pursued against Russia it's kind of created a rally around the flag effect and the anti-Russian oligarch policies that you've seen in the West and the US What's funny is they um, don't, a lot of these people don't realize that the Russian oligarchy is not like a Putinophile segment of the Russian population. They either are are very indifferent towards Putin or some are actually kind of opposed to him because we often forget that Putin did lay down the hammer on a pretty broad segment of the Russian oligarchs that gorged themselves at the neoliberal pig trough that was available to them in the 1990s and really the 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 true like oligarchical elite in russia that is like down with putin is that national security apparatus there that is pretty loyal to him and if you're gonna try to find like defections you probably target those people as opposed to the economic oligarchs And that's why I've argued that these regime change proposals in Russia are pretty harebrained and lacking in logic. And also, let's be honest here. If you look at a lot of the Russian oppositional forces, whether it's like the Communist Party or the so-called like Liberal Democratic Party there, they're at, they're actually like pretty hawkish. They would generally agree with Putin. In fact, some of them would say that Putin's not going far enough. Because also misunderstood, when you look at the overall Russian political scene, Putin is pretty moderate. In fact, in some ways, kind of liberal by Russian political standards. All it, it like people with short-term memory tend to forget that when Putin first came into power, he was in many respects a kind of liberal technocrat if you will 
that was willing to work with the West, especially after 9-11. They were, Putin was keen on partnering with the West on several initiatives. It's just that over time uh, with NATO expansion and just the West <clears throat> and Western NGOs trying to foment color revolutions in Russians near abroad and other encroachments in its traditional sphere has pushed a lot of Russian politics much more in a much more anti-Western direction. So I think that it's going to be really hard um, to pull off a regime change there because Russia is a strong state. Let's um, call it for what it is. It's a strong state and it's picked up on the color revolution playbook. And I think that those um, that card has been played so much that now uh, Russia has become relatively immune to those type of plays that the West tries to use against it. Yeah, man. Uh, you see it when, when there's sanctions, when there's like um, kind of a broad condemnation of a people. I mean, what they're going to do is they're going to rally around their, their strong national leader like Putin. So in addition, there's really no opposition that you can see to Putin right now. Like in Russia, there's no strong opposition that you can see. And to your point, the criticism I see from other Russians, um, the primary criticism I see online is that Putin's not being, he's not going far enough. You know, they're yeah. kind of upset that he didn't immediately just carpet bomb Kiev and, and go for a, a swift, quick victory. You know, they're like, why, why are we doing this protracted long war? We could have just carpet bombed Kiev. Now, um, that's the primary criticism I see. And, you know, you have to wonder if there, let's just say there is a regime change. I don't think there is either. I think that, you know, we're, we're going to be stuck with Putin and, and uh, in Russia for the very foreseeable future until he decides to leave office, to leave office um, on his own accord uh, voluntarily. Um, but you have to wonder who comes next after that. Like, is it going to be some, like, um, guy who has ties with the West? Because that would seem like it would immediately delegitimize that person if someone was running on a strong Western platform. I, I think the, the, the policy in Washington right now is just to make life so unlivable, um, to destroy the Russian currency, to uh, make the economic situation so bad that, um, you know, people are, become so disenfranchised with the Russian state where they will tolerate someone who uh is an outsider or, or you know who, who or even could potentially be seen as a as a as kind of a western stooge i tend to think that in a hypothetical regime change scenario they <clears throat> you get the whole be careful what you wish for type of dynamic in play where you may get somebody that's even more hawkish because let's face it um, the the like look at looking at the Donbass conflict, it is like a there is like a domestic politics element to it where a lot of Russians like want like the Donbass question like settled once and for all because they see a lot of their co-ethnics there getting slaughtered by the regime in Kiev and they want that question settled once and for all and that's why they're amassing that cauldron and encircling the Ukrainian forces there to to solve that question once and for all. There are a lot of people that were saying that Putin should have taken more decisive action in 2014. And if you listen to like the Russians with Attitude podcast, 
the host like will even say that they they were critical of Putin saying that that the Russian government has not been able to develop enough soft power and intelligence when dealing with countries not only like Ukraine but also Belarus which has used a multi-vector approach against Russia by playing it off with the West and not being able to decisively create its own spheres of influence in areas that it's traditionally controlled. So there's definitely that. I also think some people need to take into account um, what the domestic situation will look like in Russia in the 2030s and 2040s because if um, Russia becomes economically weaker and more unstable, it could forge an even stronger tie with China. And I saw one really good article by um, this one Russian geopolitical expert uh, named like Artyom Lukin. He's based in the Vladivostok area. He says that it is not on. Um, it's not out of question of the question that if Russia becomes really weakened by Western sanctions and overall like domestic economic policy that. Russia becomes like a mercenary state for China where it, um, anytime the West tries to ratchet up tensions with China, China will in turn recruit Russia to become its mercenary and respond with military actions of its own kind, whether it's like in the Baltics or whatever, to make the West sweat a little. So this is the one problem with a lot of these regime change types and just hawk types in the West, in that they're um, they're they're not taking into account that this world is much more multipolar, and there's a lot of countries that are not going to follow their orders that obediently like they did before. And now countries are willing to become much more flexible and form their own security arrangements to check against the West because that's the thing about when you have like a hegemon like the U.S. There is a natural tendency for the international system to uh, to seek equilibrium and it will do so through a balancing coalition of other countries that don't really like what the west is doing so they're going to pact and form their own strategic partnerships or alliances to check the west and that's why i tell people that it's just not like that simple like oh if we knock off putin um <clears throat> will be able to change Russia's entire grand strategy and move it to the, towards the West. No, if anything, it could get somebody that's more devious, more cutthroat, that's willing to stick it to Russia. And if Russia's situation deteriorates and the, the economic situation deteriorates in the next 10 or 20 years, it could potentially just strengthen its ties with China even more and then form an even more dangerous military pact against the West. So yeah, these people need to be careful what they wish for because it could blow up in their face. And we've seen this happen all the time with U.S. blowback. But that the previous blowback that we saw with, say, like Al-Qaeda, that we're dealing with non-state actors here and like terrorist groups. Now we're looking at more blowback with actual great powers that have nuclear arsenals and large conventional forces. So, yeah, this is big league stuff. And the, pe and the people in D.C. are thinking in minor league terms. Yeah, I completely agree with what you said, and I think you just laid that out really well. Um, it, it's the potential blowback can be it can be devastating. Like it can be really dangerous, and you know, like you, you said earlier, the the primary um, kind of narrative right now coming out of the West is like the authoritarian versus the democracy 
argument that, you know, we have our democracies on one side and we have our authoritarians on one side, and that's going to be the new Cold War. There's going to be so many contradictions within that because countries oh, yeah. are going to start pursuing their own interest. Like, and even the U.S., like on the U.S. block, there, there's a lot of authoritarian countries in, in the U.S. block. Um, if you're if you're talking about like some of the, Turkey, the, the Turkey, Egypt, <laughs> Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia hasn't been picking up Biden's calls and they're staying neutral. But um, it, I mean, they're still U.S. block. Let's let's be real. Yeah. Um, um, but it's just I don't know. It's I, I'm just perplexed, and I don't really think there's anyone in Washington who is mature enough or has the wisdom to uh, kind of steer this collision course from happening. It's it's um, you have like you know your libertarians and your and your uh, people on the populist right who have a better policy, like kind of the policy that Tucker Carlson represents, but. That's not the reality of like who's in who's in power right now in the yeah, Republican Party. Like you have guys like um, uh, Mitt Romney and and the the majority of Republicans. This is this is completely um, uh, bipartisan. Like they're completely united. Like you had mentioned yeah. that big power politics has a tendency to unite the the, the ruling elite. Um, there's there's no one who's really. Um, it seems like there's no good options in Washington. Well, I even noted this too in one of my recent pieces for the Mises Institute that even on the so-called populist right, the national conservative crowd, like their poster boy, the Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, who had a relatively good speech, I think like two or three years ago about U.S. foreign policy excesses. He was like one of like the biggest boosters of like sending like MIGs to Ukraine and sending military aid to Ukraine and the these people who are so-called populists like have just fallen for a lot of the military industrial complex Kool-Aid and just like the DC blob group think it's actually like very disconcerting to see otherwise reasonable reasonable voices not really stand up to it like it's really like Thomas Massey and like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the house that are like the people that are sounding like relatively sane and even like um the squad um on occasion they'll sound good they'll they'll talk about like yeah we need to reconsider nato but they haven't really been going as hard as i would think like an anti so-called anti-war leftist block would be going and it's pretty disconcerting because that's the problem too with <clears throat> with like dc in general it is very out of touch with a lot of like the middle American base, the working class base that has no interest really like whatsoever getting entangled in some some distant conflict that has nuclear implications. And it's just like another sign. DC is way out of touch. Um, it's had a bad foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, uh, an incredibly incoherent policy. You can see it on a microcosmic level with like Syria where like the CIA is like arming the so-called moderate rebels and then like the DOD is arming the Kurds and it's just like what's going on here like there it seems like there's like no coherent like sovereign foreign policy that's being prosecuted and it's just very schizophrenic and it's just bad all around because we're creating multiple enemies throughout this entire process and I don't want to uh, be in any part of like 
some great power conflict where a lot of these enemies could could align themselves against the U.S. But unfortunately, DC loves kicking the can down the road and setting fires everywhere. And eventually, it's going to get burnt. And I don't want to be caught on the receiving end of that. It sounds like the opinion of a Putin apologist, right? <laughs> How many times have you been called a Putin apologist over the past six weeks or so? Um, that's actually an interesting question because I, I do mute a lot of responses on Twitter. But, I mean, yeah, you, I, I get this a lot. And I also, also a lot of the people that I do correspondence with and that I cite in my work routinely get this from this whole crowd of people on Twitter that are just like dedicated to being the the ornery reply guys and just say like, oh, this is like a Kremlin talking point. Like how much is Putin paying you? Blah, blah, blah. There's like a whole army of those people that are just willing to derail conversations and not really add anything of substance. But that's kind of what we're at these days in foreign policy discourse. It's become really degraded and it's filled with vapid talking points that have zero substance. I wouldn't. I wouldn't really feel so bad about that. I get called a Putin apologist sometimes, and I've been one of the loudest people on this show saying like how much I dislike Putin's foreign policy and how I think his invasion was illegal, which is hilarious that I get called. Yeah. That. So it's just it's it it's just a way it's, that people that don't read or don't in our case don't listen a way for them to just virtue signal something yeah. that they don't understand. Basically, yeah, yeah. The Ukraine flag on social media, like uh, all all that stuff, that's just like virtue signaling. There's like nothing much of like substance there, and that's kind of like um, a broader sign of like the fact that people in this kind of like so-called like attention economy, uh, people are do it to garner attention and not really engage in any activity that requires like a long-term like investment of like time and effort. In, in order to get into the know about these topics because these are topics that are not that easy mm-hmm. well they're just they're, they're extremely complicated and people don't really have time to study a foreign policy issue yeah so it's a lot easier to just uh grab some talking points and uh run with that but yeah. i just think it's real funny that you know putin being called a putin apologist is kind of the kind of the uh defense mechanism um or attack mechanism really when dealing with any type of dissent other than um you know putin is an evil dictator he must be stopped at any cost we must support ukraine um anything that diverges from that um narrative you're immediately slandered as a putin apologist and who in america is actually like ideologically pro vladimir putin like what your rate like there's no Eurasianist in America. Like if yeah. there is, it's such a significant minority of people who are actually ideologically aligned with Vladimir Putin and what his his foreign policy goals are. You know, back in the day, in the, in the 1950s and, and 1940s, when there was a you know the, during the McCarthy movement, um, there were there were actually communists in the State Department. Right. Like there there were actually communists who were in who were uh, in the government. So at least I didn't agree. I don't, I don't agree with it. But at least there was, you know, support and and um, kind of admiration for the Soviet Union in, in the government during the Cold War and early in the Cold War ages. So you can see that the logic here. But who 
on earth is an actual like Putin apologist in the United <laughs> States who, who uh, supports him unconditionally or, or agrees with, with him ideologically? I mean, you have to like really like scour through like the like the fever swamps of like Twitter on like these like anonymous like um, reactionary like right wing accounts where to, to find that. But like like honestly, does anybody believe that those type of keyword warriors have like any type of like political clout in like the U.S.? It's like come on, like just because like you find that like on the um, like crevices of like in of the internet. Is not a sign that like there's like a emergent pro Putin network in the U.S. Like just saying like a, uh, that you're like a non-interventionist does not mean like you're a pro Putin apologist. It's um it's definitely a boogeyman they're trying to conjure up. And really, when you think about it, uh, the when you're seeing this stuff about like Germany banning the letter Z and like the Czech Republic and uh no, I think it's like Slovakia. Or I think both actually, and even like Latvia, um, banning like any official pro-Russia manifestations. I think it's really a kind of foot in the door type of measure to just ban like a realist critique of Western policy uh, towards Russia. When you think about it, because th- that stuff like John Mearsheimer also like faced a kind of struggle session if you will where all these people signed this letter like pushing the university of chicago to have mearsheimer clarify quote unquote his views on the russia ukraine struggle because they're they're these people are arguing that he's making an apologia for russia when really he's just explaining things in a descriptive sense on how security dilemmas unfold whenever like the the u.s tries to get more involved in russia's face which creates like an inevitable like security spiral unfortunately some people really can't see through can't see can't really grasp that nuance and they think that oh he's just basically making an excuse for russia's invasion and i think it's dangerous too because a lot of this anti um free speech stuff is probably done to muzzle shut any type of actual like realist opposition to like the western policy towards russia because we need this kind of opposition we need like a level-headed response that's like actually like more nuanced where it kind of like says like hey we're not condoning russia's invasion but we also understand the way that great power politics works that when an external actor that's a great power tries to get involved in another great power's like historical domain or sphere of interest it's going to inevitably lead to some form of a really nasty form of security competition that could get hot. But unfortunately, people think that this is like being like pro-Putin or... Yeah, no, there's, pro- there's, definitely, yeah. there's definitely gray areas in between. Like me personally, I am very against the Russian invasion, but I could still talk about why he did it. You know, <laughs> like you can have both conversations at the same time. Like I'm definitely not apologetic to... To what's yeah, going same, on in, in Ukraine, but same here. I could yeah. still talk about NATO expansion. That, like, yeah. I can do both. You can do both, people. <laughs> yes, yeah, and that's the scary part is that um, really at the end of the day, this is like a silencing of like a discourse by the regime. They want like a monolithic consensus, and that's why they go out of their way to attack people like Mearsheimer and others who have warned about this 
because we need like more conversations from people from across the spectrum who talk about this because also this isn't a left versus right issue either. Mm-mm. There's a ton of people from the old left, uh, the dissident left, dissident right, paleoconservatives, libertarians uh, have warned about this for decades. Yeah, yeah it's it's um, it's um, not, it shouldn't be a partisan issue at all. And if you see guy, it's pretty diverse to the people who are speaking reasonably on this. It's, you know, people, on, there's some people on the right, there's some people on the left, like um, Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal and Glenn Grinwald. And there's some people in the libertarian sphere who are speaking reasonably on this. It's, it there's, doesn't seem to be like a consensus left versus right who, uh, yeah, who's been correct on this. It's, it's, uh, it's just people who are really primarily principled and versus people who aren't really principled. Uh, seem to be the ones who who, who are getting this, um, but it is it is scary. Um, I, I don't know if you saw his last interview. I th- well, I saw this on a Twitter clip. I don't know if it was his last interview, but Mearsheimer was talking about how the U.S. has chosen put has put Ukraine in a situation where, or at least Zelensky in a situation where it's, it will be impossible for him to actually negotiate a peace with Russia because <coughs> the U.S. Has made their alliance with the far right in Ukraine rather than than um, than Zelensky, and if Zelensky actually tries to negotiate any type of peace to the end of this war, he's going to be killed, or at least put incredible in, in an incredible amount of danger from the hardliners in Ukraine. So um, I don't know. What's your take on that? And as far as uh, um. Zelensky and uh, Ukraine and the, you know, the more fascistic elements of the Ukrainian uh, uh, government and, and uh, you know, far-right movements there. There is something to Mearsheimer's claim because the Ukrainian far-right, and I would argue a lot of even a lot of other factions of Ukraine have gone much more nationalistic over the past eight years uh, to the point where they exercise a de facto veto over any of like Zelensky's peace overtures. We shouldn't forget that Zelensky did, was elected on a relatively peace platform, but these groups have gotten stronger, these um, extremist elements in Ukraine, and they're really impeding the process of piece there it's actually kind of scary too because one thing i picked up in following like a youtube channel like the duran with alexander mercoris and alex christoforu um they have highlighted over the past year that uh, russian foreign minister sergey lavrov has said well before this conflict that if you uh, that ukraine's ability to exist as a coherent governing like nation is at jeopardy now if they cannot get to like the negotiating table and hammer out some type of modus vivendi. And this was in reference to uh, the Minks agreement, which I think now are, is pretty much like de facto dead uh, because we're just looking at a different reality. And I'm actually am pretty worried about the situation at the moment because you could see this conflict take a different dimension where it's no longer about fully liberating the Donbass or whatever. It could get more expansionist in nature if the West starts ratcheting up the arms sales, emboldening 
the Ukrainian hard right and pursuing this whole battle of using um, of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian, where by when the, once the smoke settles, you could see a total rearrangement of the borders and the Ukrainian state will no longer exist. And that's a pretty scary proposition in terms of refugee outflows and just like utter devastation. And not to mention the 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 broader economic impact that it'll have on the world economy. We are in scary times. And I tell people this too, that we we, we should look back in history with all like the sanctioning and all that. Like they this was done um, to Imperial Japan throughout the 30s up until Pearl Harbor where they ratcheted up sanctions and embargoes and it, and it did not deter Japan. In fact, it emboldened it to the point where it attacked Pearl Harbor. And um, I warn people that we should not be ratcheting up like tensions with Russia because this could make this could turn an otherwise limited intervention, say in eastern Ukraine, into maybe a full-blown inter- intervention if it dawns upon the Russian elites that, like, yeah, we've already there's already so many sunk costs. We might as well maximize this conflict for all it's worth. So that's a, a calculation that people need to keep in mind when they start ratcheting it up tensions with Russia because there's like a, there are very strong factions within DC that think that we're not doing enough when it comes to supplying military aid sanctions or even um, the use of NATO and um, there needs to be like these unintended consequences need to be considered by people because that's the whole point of like foreign policy intervention is that there are unintended consequences and second third order effects that many of these foreign policy planners don't take into account when they start pursuing sanctions covert operations or even direct military intervention man well jose i thought that you were i thought you were gonna make me feel better today but um (laughs) i'm feeling i'm feeling worse now (laughs) danny what were you saying i was i was gonna say that that leaves um that leaves us in a in a strange spot because Ukraine's fucked. Whether or not whether or not external countries um, are willing to intervene. Yeah, um, it, it, yeah. There's like the there's no like the new normal is uh, is basically the new abnormal there. Um, yeah, it, it's actually like really messed up now because there's some stuff that's baked into the cake with Ukraine. I think like its borders are not going to be the same and. Um, it's going to be fully disconnected. Even if you had like a negotiated settlement that was relatively decent, um, I still think there will be a lot of ticked off irredentist and revanchist elements within Ukraine that may spark conflict um, in the future. It's just a bad situation all around, and it's the tragedy of great power politics playing out in real time. Yeah, yeah. Really I don't think Ukrainian nationalism is gonna is gonna simmer down anytime soon. Nope, absolutely not. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I was telling people that um, post-Maidan, Ukrainian nationalism is very, very strong. And in fact, to the point where um, you even see like in Eastern Ukraine, there there has been uh, pretty staunch resistance from a lot of people, even like Russian speakers to Russia's invasion. And like, you have to give the devil its due the anti-Russia project that has emerged in Ukraine since the 
Maidan revolution has been pretty strong in it. And Russia has not been able to pull off a coup de, de main, if you will, like the way they did like in Crimea. Like it's very fierce and there's going to be ongoing tension for decades to come once all like dust settles. Yeah, I mean, it really, to your point, you, you mentioned that the Russians with Attitude podcast um, had complained about the Russian intelligence. It really seemed like they dropped the ball. They thought that they were, were going to have a coup de main. And um, just be able to walk in and Russian soldiers would or Russian speakers would just be like, oh, um, we're going to switch sides now and, and uh, we're going to align ourselves with Russia. That certainly, I, I think that they did not expect to get the mm-hmm. resistance that they did at all. Yeah, that, there's some truth to that. I ha- I know some um, IR, like security experts um, in that region that said that, that Russian intelligence like really dropped the ball when it um, came to measuring the overall receptiveness towards like a Russian invasion. And in fact, a lot of uh, the Ukrainian domestic population has picked up on who are like the R- Russian spooks and all of that. Like, um, in that area and and like yeah there's like definitely resistance to to russia's invasion there ukrainian nationalism isn't going away it's gotten pretty strong and off uh, more often than not one of the ways that you can really foster nationalism in a country is if it's subject to an external invasion and john mearsheimer himself says that nationalism is like the strongest force in um in international affairs so this is going to be a, an attritional conflict with a pretty nasty body count and it's it's a disaster on all fronts and um in an ideal world we would have a serious foreign policy class that would create uh, create some type of mediation so that we could have this conflict end like today but yeah we're not living in that yeah um well well damn i wish i wish we could say i wish it would speak in more often have a more optimistic conversation but i pretty much agree with um everything you just said um this is a good time to wrap this one up um Jose, thank you for, for joining us and giving us so much time. Um, what do you want to plug? Like, just plug plug your work, your sub pack. Where can everyone find you uh, on the different shows that you're on, and um, you know your your uh, you know where you're writing. Yeah, I'll start off my Substack. Um, yeah, El Nino, um, it's a Jose Nino unfiltered. I talk about a host of issues from foreign policy to domestic issues, from more of like a dissident right libertarian perspective and then i have my podcast el nino speaks there i i host a whole bunch of people from across the political spectrum on the the aforementioned issues you can also catch that on spotify itunes and stitcher and for my writings you can catch those at big league politics liberty conservative news the liberty loft mises institute and geopolitics and empire Thank you, Jose. Um, I'm gonna. I need to start listening to this show uh, on a daily because this has been awesome. Um, we just covered pretty much the entire world. Um, <laughs> we, yeah. We, yeah. In, in uh, an hour and a half. So everyone, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to support the show, uh, make sure you rate and review the podcast on Spotify and iTunes, and uh, you can also join us on our Patreon. 
we're going to be releasing an episode early on Patreon uh, tomorrow. So uh, so uh, make sure you join us on the on the Maidan Revolution and um, yeah, come come support us and then support Jose as well. Listen to all his stuff, read his writing. Uh, he's obviously extremely well informed. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it, Danny. It's all from me. It's all from you. All right, peace, everyone. Peace. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.